2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener, and here comes the next financial crisis. Trump has taken credit for the stock market going up. Now that it's going down, does he get credit for that too? Nomi Prins will comment. Also, remember when Trump said we should get fewer immigrants coming here from what he called shithole countries and more from places like Norway? We'll ask Ann Jones about that. She lived in Norway for a couple of years recently. We'll ask her what might happen if Norwegians actually did come to the United States. But first, let's talk about treason. For that, we turn to Joan Walsh. She's the nation's national affairs correspondent and a CNN political analyst. She's also the author of What's the Matter with White People? Finding Our Way in the Next America. We reached her today in New York City. Joan, welcome back. Thanks, John. Happy to be with you. Well, Donald Trump gave a speech to factory workers in Blue Ash, Ohio on Monday, where he complained that the Democrats didn't clap for him during the State of the Union speech. He said, quote, shall we call that treason? Why not? Close quote. Do do you think it's treason not to clap for the president? Of course it isn't.
3: Everyone knows it isn't treason, except maybe Donald Trump. I don't know what he knows, but you know it, it's it's a new low. I, I've seen Republicans, and I know Sarah Sanders has said, "Oh, he was joking." It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter for a couple of reasons. First of all, he also called them un-American and said they didn't love our country. So he was he was. Going for a very sharp dig. And secondly, he has degraded our language and our sense of justice and the law for two years or more. Um, and we, we can't keep giving him a pass or saying, oh, that's just the president. This man has threatened to lock up his political opponent, Hillary Clinton. He has told the Justice Department to. to uh, Investigate her to go against her. He has berated his own attorney general, uh, Jeff Sessions, a man who was as right wing as they come, for not protecting him uh, and and for not staying involved with the Russia investigation when it, it was obvious he had to accuse himself because he because Sessions lied. So we are seeing a man who you know he's he's a toddler. But he's, he's also an authoritarian. He looks like he would be more comfortable in Vladimir Putin's shoes or in Erdogan's Turkey than running a democracy in the United States.
2: I'm going to go back just for a minute to the White House spokesman who said on Tuesday morning that the president was just kidding when he said it was a treason not to clap for him in the State of the Union. Uh, we have the clip of Trump's speech Let's listen.
0: You're up there. You've got half the room going totally crazy, wild. They loved everything. They want to do something great for our country. And you have the other side, even on positive news, really positive news like that, they were like death and un-American, un-American. Somebody said treasonous. I mean, yeah, I guess why not? You know. Can we call that treason? Why not? I mean, they certainly didn't seem to love our country very much.
2: So the White House spokesman said Trump was speaking, quote, tongue-in-cheek. Joan, did it sound to you like that was tongue-in-cheek?
3: No, it didn't. It sounded like he was agreeing with, I don't know if it was a person in the audience that he heard it from, I don't know, you know, if it was someone else, Uh, but he had the opportunity to say, well, treason, that's going too far, I wouldn't do, you know, but he, but he endorsed it, he said it twice, John, and so, you know, this desire from the White House to periodically give this guy the benefit of the doubt when he has proven time and again that he doesn't deserve it, especially on these questions of civil liberties and and freedom. Sarah Huckabee Sanders has zero credibility. She should be ashamed of herself. She goes out there and lies. At least Sean Spicer looked a little bit embarrassed, like (laughs) sometimes he knew
2: he was lying. Yes, he did, didn't he? She's brazen. Well, now for something else. According to the New York Times on Tuesday, Trump's lawyers do not want him to sit down for an interview about his Russia dealings with special counsel Robert Mueller. His lawyers are, quote, concerned that the president has a history of making false statements, close quote. Does that mean Trump's lawyers think he's a liar? <laughs>
3: that's pretty much what it means, yes. that's He has a history of, of lying, uh, and they know it, and they don't feel that he could even control himself long enough to sit down with Robert Mueller. It's a really astonishing thing. I've heard people refer to this as a you know, that is setting a perjury trap for the president. There's no such thing as a perjury trap. Go in, tell the truth. You can't, then you can't perjure yourself if you're telling the truth. There's a lot of concern that he doesn't know what other, what other people have already testified. That's the way these investigations work. But if you tell the truth, you'll be okay. So it would seem to suggest that he either can't or won't tell the truth, that the truth is incriminating. And his lawyers have now overruled him or most of his lawyers
2: I just want to point out, Trump has said he wants to do it. Maggie Haberman writes in The Times, Trump's penchant for bravado has been a factor that his lawyers must contend with. The president has bragged to some aides that he would be able to clear himself if he just talked to Mr. Mueller's team, quote, I'm looking forward to it, actually, Trump told reporters at the White House last month. So what do you make of that?
3: He's delusional. I I don't know if if he believes what he's saying there. Uh, Honestly, John, I can't. I'm comfortable calling him a liar because he does lie so often. But we also have to acknowledge that sometimes he's delusional. So he might have moments where he feels like he would be in the clear, where where he feels like whatever he did, he was entitled to do it. So I, I, I don't know who to believe here, except to believe. The Times reporting that his lawyers think it's a bad idea, because they know that he is not going to help himself, and that he may very well lie. And unlike certain lies, uh, his lies would be caught because the Mueller investigation has gone so deep and so broad. So I think they're, they're right to be worried. It's appalling that Republicans like Chris Christie, who was once a prosecutor, uh, and, and Newt Gingrich, I expect nothing from him, are defending the president in, in case he decides not to talk to Mueller. It, it's outrageous. Bill Clinton did it. He had to do it. Uh, it wasn't pleasant for him. But there's a precedent here. And, uh, you know, it'll be very interesting to see if the president has to be forced.
2: And the precedent on on the other side, of course, is Richard Nixon refusing to cooperate with prosecutors when they requested the White House tapes. That, of course, went to the Supreme Court and led to a constitutional crisis that culminated with Nixon resigning. If Trump refuses to meet with Mueller, of course, it would prompt accusations that the president has something to hide. That would spur the special counsel on to further inquiries. Uh, The November elections are not that far away. So the, the risks for Trump are pretty great here.
3: It's a very bad look for Trump if he doesn't uh, talk to Mueller. So we have to assume if he doesn't, that the consequences of talking to him are worse, whether political consequences, legal consequences, or probably both. It's a very, very difficult case to make. It will hurt Republicans up and down the ticket people will be even angrier with him than they are. If he does it, it will be to save his skin and not the parties, And it will, I think, I was gonna say, it will separate some Republicans from the president. I've predicted that so many times <laughs> oh, since he was dear. elected John, and it just hasn't happened. I don't really know what it, what it would take, but it would be a, a, an awful moment uh, and one that we may nonetheless see very soon.
2: Well, now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Michelle Bachman is not going to run for the Senate seat vacated by Al Franken. A couple of weeks ago, she announced she had asked God whether she should run, and she said over the past weekend, quote, it became very clear to me that I wasn't hearing any call from God to do this, close quote. This means God did not want Michelle Bachmann in the Senate. shouldn't Shouldn't that be headlines?
3: <laughs> I think she's such a marginal character at this point, uh, and would have had so small a chance of winning even uh, the nomination that it 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 wasn't it didn't register because nobody was worried about it. For agnostics, for those of us who believe in God, it's it's a good time to say thank you, God. <laughs> uh, but but for other people, I think it's just a, another laughable moment uh, in the annals of the increasingly irrelevant Michelle Bachman.
2: Can we talk for a minute about your move from MSNBC to CNN? It, it all happened on December 24th. MSNBC told you they were not renewing your contract. You had been a contributor there for 12 years, and Twitter went crazy. You are the first person I ever knew who was actually trending on Twitter Hashtag keep Joan Walsh. Chris Hayes and Joy Reid tweeted support for you. And by that evening, CNN had hired you. What was the whole thing like for you?
3: It was surreal. Uh, It was not quite the 24th, but it was the Friday before Christmas that they they told me they weren't going to renew my contract. That was the 22nd. And yes, within 24 hours, CNN had made me an offer. And it, yes, in the intervening hours, I had never seen myself trend either, and it was it was mind blowing. I was getting ready for a dinner party that Saturday night. I was trying to stay off Twitter. My daughter was trying to keep me off Twitter. She was taking pictures of me and and posting them to Twitter, saying things like uh, hashtag Keep Joan Walsh peeling potatoes. Keep Joan Walsh cleaning the kitchen, reminding me what I was supposed to be doing and not, you know, obsessing on social media, which was really helpful. And uh, I just am incredibly grateful for the outpouring of support. You know, we can't complain about Twitter. It does terrible things. It's got a terrible bot problem. It doesn't deal with either Russian bots or real live Nazis as well as it should. But I've been on actively for almost 10 years, I do have a following and I think that MSNBC's decision partly coming before Christmas and also I think letting go of a progressive woman of a certain age uh, at a time when the resistance is female, there's a real perception of the, uh, the, 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 the lack of women in high places in media. It's getting better, but it's still not good. We've had revelations of sexual harassment in the industry, uh, which we know has thwarted the careers of, of many women. So I think there was a real sense of protection of me among women, some of whom know me and spoke out on my behalf, and some of whom only know me from TV, but think that I was treated unfairly. And so it had a happy ending. I love CNN. I'm having a great time.
2: Joan Walsh. Watch her on CNN. Read her at thenation.com. Thanks, Joan. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks, John. Next up, here comes the next financial crisis. For that, we turn to Nomi Prins. She's the author of six books, including All the President's Bankers. And her writing has been featured in The New York Times, Mother Jones, The Guardian, Tom Dispatch, and The Nation, among others. Nomi Prins, welcome.
4: Thank you so much.
2: Well, Trump for months has been taking credit for the stock market going up. and Of course, there's nothing surprising about Wall Street being happy with lower taxes and less regulation. But this week, the stock market went down. Does Trump get credit for that, too?
4: <laughs> well, Trump has been surprisingly tweet quiet since the stock market went down by about 2,000 points between Thursday and um and Monday, I think he, uh, you know, there are things that might actually shut him down for a minute. He's not taking credit for the downside. He did certainly take credit for the upside. And if the markets go back up, I'm sure he will be back again to take credit. Um, but the reality is, uh, the markets are indicative of not the real economy, but but the level of capital that's available for the most part. Um, to the speculative classes, I mean, there, there is a percentage of other types of citizens who have some money in it. But for the most part, the bigger movements tend to happen because there's capital available to the more speculative groups of, of companies and um, individuals and so forth. And that, that's what has been pushing the stock market up high, not just under Trump, um, but also President Obama since the financial crisis in 2007-2008.
2: So the stock market goes up and down. What's the scenario for the next big crash? How might it start? What might it look like?
4: So here's what happened since the financial crisis. Um, the Federal Reserve stepped in and ensured that rates, interest rates, got down to zero. Um, and that was predominantly, although it was termed as to be helpful to the real economy. In reality, um, it was the largest private banks that have regular access to the cheapest money. So if rates are zero, they pretty much have access to 0% interest rate money. Um, They turn around and, of course, uh, don't use that same um, lower level for, you know, providing mortgages. I mean, of course, they did lower to some extent, or providing credit card um, interest rates being lower and so forth. What they tend to do um, is use it for speculative purposes. And so the availability of what turned out to be $4.5 trillion worth of cash from the Federal Reserve ultimately went into the markets. It wasn't just the Federal Reserve, which was the U.S central bank. It was a global coordination of major central banks that did the same thing. So global capital money was rendered very cheap by central banks. They added additional cash into the system because they just manufactured it. And all of that had the result of giving the largest banks and the largest corporations money to spend, which they did on their own shares and in the stock market. So the unraveling of that is how you get the next financial crash. If the money in the stock market has come to the market by artificial uh, collaboration and different types of means, then that money isn't, it's not real. Um, It's not long-term. It is temporary. Um, The other pillar of what happened that didn't just put that artificial money into the stock markets was that we created Um, i.e. we the powers that be created a tremendous debt bubble so both in public debt and the debt that governments issue in order to supposedly finance their economies but in this case it went towards um, basically weighing down um, corporations who borrowed it cheaply the bigger you are the cheaper you get money whether you are a bank or whether you are ge or whether you are apple It's easier to borrow money more cheaply when it is available if you are bigger. So all of those companies, as well as governments, borrowed money at these cheap rates, so that created a debt bubble. A financial crisis tends to start with a debt bubble popping, and then it very quickly moves on to a stock bubble popping, and stock markets tend to go down more quickly from higher heights um, than debt does simply because they... They, they trade more quickly. It's, it's, it's a lot easier to buy and sell stock than sometimes it is to buy and sell bonds. And so the financial crisis that would happen is because all of this starts to unravel because in reality um, it wasn't based on real growth or real investment um, or real solid foundational economics.
2: We have a bunch of government regulatory institutions whose purpose is to protect us from the unraveling that you're describing let's talk about the safeguards and how they are supposed to work
4: so in theory the federal reserve which i just spoke about having basically plenished the banking system which then created all this debt and, and stock bubbles around it is supposed to as one of its day jobs regulate the banking system technically it was created or at least some of the language was created to enable it to have that supreme regulatory power over the banks In practice what has happened not least because it was created um, to help the biggest banks when it was um, established in nineteen thirteen by the federal reserve act is that it tends to not be able to do that very well so when we have the financial crisis in two thousand seven two thousand eight the fed was completely asleep at that wheel in fact ben bernanke who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve at the time, um, was going about saying that the housing problems that were basically visible to, to any really good journalist or economist who was paying attention to the figures that actually were also in the books of the Federal Reserve. So these were not even secretive figures. There were problems in the housing industry, which meant there were problems and the assets that the banks created on the back of the housing industry's mortgages, which they basically proliferated throughout the world, and when those fell, the whole, the whole market crashed. Um, the Fed wasn't good at noticing that. It wasn't good at doing anything about it. Um, and this time's no different. The, the only difference is is that instead of dealing just with mortgage-related securities at the residential level, people's mortgages, um, there's much more commercial mortgage problems that will be coming in because of all of this cheap borrowing and because commercial borrowers were able to borrow um, more and at better rates than at this time around individuals could. And also that these corporate bubbles and these government bubbles, which I was speaking about before, the Fed is supposed to be watching that And it's it's supposed to um, be able to regulate the banks that are involved in that. The other institutions or entities in Washington that are supposed to be looking at this stuff are the Securities and Exchange Commission, um, whose job it is, among other things, to ensure that the securities that trade in the public marketplace, which are related to banks and major corporations and anyone who is able to trade their stocks or their debt in the corporate marketplace, are not imbued with fraud. Um, So instead of what happened in the wake of the last financial crisis, um, of finding all of these institutions after the fact, after they've committed the fraud, technically the SEC is supposed to be ahead of that game and to watch for things that will um, accumulate. Um, the other sort of newer institutions or entities are the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was created in the wake of the financial crisis of 2007 2008 um, under the Dodd Frank Act of 2010. Um, that was a big push by Elizabeth Warren and other senators who thought it would be good. Even though technically this was part of the Federal Reserve's job to watch to make sure the banks were regulated properly so that they didn't screw over actual consumers and people, that there should be a separate entity, um, and it is in fact funded under the Federal Reserve's umbrella, that would specifically watch for problems that could hurt consumers or also um, help to navigate problems that already occurred against consumers and help to get some of their money back. Um, So those are some of the entities that exist that are supposed to be protecting us um, and the economy in general from reckless banking and other types of market behavior.
2: So what we've seen in the last week is uh, just a little hint of how fragile the markets can be. Nevertheless, Trump's deregulation is going full speed ahead. Uh, How fragile are the markets at this point, do you think?
4: Well, given the fact that a lot of the growth, um, or what I think is the bubble filling um, of the markets, has taken place on the back of artificial means, on the fact, that on the back of these central banks um, working to ensure that there's enough cheap money for. The, the financial system and its you know sort of corporate clients to to exist and to uh, buy their own stock and issue more debt and all the things that create a bubble um, that's not an inherently stable market situation that's not the same as um, as as real growth it's not the same as a company growing because it's investing in its people or it's building um, you know a new plant or there's infrastructure development happening um, or or that sort of thing and so it's not an inherently stable environment so if you add that um, to, for example, what's happening with the Trump administration, which are all the entities that are supposed to be monitoring um, or regulating or ensuring the stability, the safety of the entire system for the rest of us, um, are, are wanting to instead dismantle whatever rules currently exist. And so that every person who Trump has appointed um, and the Senate has approved um, to run these different areas is a self proclaimed deregulator. Um, who who doesn't want to have more rules for banks, but but to have less. Um, You know, Stephen Mnuchin, who is the Treasury Secretary, well, has gotten rid of, um, for example, certain reporting requirements just for us to know what's going on with some of the more systemically, um, you know, risky types of institutions in the mix. And so they're not really trying to... Um, and gender safety around the system they're trying to do exactly the opposite. so if you if you add an unstable system that has been artificially stimulated um, to a pack of people whose, whose job it is to ensure stability but who are doing the exact opposite um, in total dogma then and and have the, the power to um, to affect those sorts of, of changes um, so does Congress but it depends on the entity that they're in charge of whether things go through Congress or doesn't um, that that becomes a just toxic. of mess.
2: One last thing. You had an interesting life before you became a journalist. Tell us about that.
4: (laughs) Well, I actually worked at at four of the biggest banks in the world, two of which actually no longer exist. Um, Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns, uh, which went belly up during the financial crisis, were not saved by their relationships with Washington. Um, People in Washington, for example, Hank Paulson, who had been the CEO and chairman of another bank I worked for a little institution called Goldman Sachs um, was in Washington helping to save Goldman Sachs um, and J.P. Morgan Chase, for example. I had started work um, in my career on Wall Street at Chase um, when I was 19 out of college. And so I kind of did the gamut of the larger um, investment bank and commercial bank institutions um, before Glass-Steagall was repealed, during, after, when the euro was created, um, basically throughout all of um, a really interesting time uh, of just financial change in the world and sort of the power um, increase of these institutions. And then I quit um, around the time when there was a lot, of, well, after 9-11. Um, and, uh, and now I've been using that, uh, you know, towards towards journalism and, and, and writing books and, um, you know, hopefully illuminating the sort of dark side of the financial system for, for people that, you know, didn't necessarily have that experience on the ground.
2: Nomi Prins on the dark side... Her new piece at TheNation.com is titled, Here Comes the Next Financial Crisis. Trump's deregulators are setting the economy on fire. Nomi, thanks so much for talking with us today.
5: Thank you, Doug.
2: We're still thinking about Donald Trump's question about immigration. Remember when he said, Why are we having all these people from shithole countries coming here? Followed by his suggestion that the United States should admit more immigrants from places, he said, like Norway. For comment on that, we turn to our Norway correspondent, Ann Jones. She's a journalist and author whose works include the unforgettable book, Kabul in Winter. She's also the author of War Is Not Over When It's Over, both from Metropolitan Books. And her latest book is called They Were Soldiers, How the Wounded Return from America's Wars, the Untold Story. Anne Jones, welcome back. Thank you. Well, let's start with you in Norway. You have what we call standing to talk about this.
5: Uh, I think so. I uh, lived in Norway for... um, continuously for four years. It was my refuge. You mentioned some of the books I've written about Afghanistan, about other war zones where I've worked, uh, about being uh, embedded for uh, a time with American forces to observe the injured and how how the injured and wounded soldiers uh, are evacuated and treated. I had had many years of experience with warfare, and frankly, I needed some R&R, and I applied for a Fulbright Fellowship to Norway, which um, thankfully they gave me, and I went on that uh, brief fellowship and liked it so much that I just stayed on for several years because I needed frankly, to live in a peaceful, happy place after being through way too much violence in in the years before. So that was my recovery. I loved it there, and I loved it because of the way Norway has put itself together, because of its politics and the governance that it has managed to create for the good of all the citizens, and also for their visitors, I might
2: add. (laughs) Well, there haven't been any signs that Norwegians want to immigrate to the United States, but you write in The Nation that if a mass of Norwegian immigrants did show up here, it would pose a genuine threat to Donald Trump's America. What kind of threat are you talking about?
5: Well, uh, an an ideological threat, a threat of politics and governance. Um, The reason uh, that it's unlikely that many Norwegians would want to come to the United States, to emigrate to the United States, is that they are year after year ranked at the top of the list of happiest countries on earth. And it is because of their particular political and economic organization. This is a topic that Bernie Sanders um, tried kind of uh, unsuccessfully to discuss in the um, Democratic debates in the last election. And it got kind of dismissed because Norway is a small country, uh, something like 5.2 million people. But there are big lessons to be learned from there. And I think the biggest one is the importance of equality in maintaining a democracy. Norway makes real efforts through restraints upon capitalism cooperative restraints on capitalism in Norway to make capitalism work for all the people. They distribute, redistribute the wealth for the good of all the citizens. In the tax bill our government just passed, we redistribute the wealth upward, continuously, so that we are now the most unequal country in the developed world. Well, if you don't tax uh, you're wealthy citizens. You don't have the money to do anything for your country. But the Norwegians take exactly the opposite approach. By using their system of taxation to, uh, on a progressive tax system to tax all the working people in the country, and they're, they're usually at full employment, That tax money then is systematically redistributed to a universal public welfare system, and that includes um, education, health care, services for the elderly, the disabled, Uh, it includes affordable housing, great transportation, it includes all those things that are missing in American life and that make Americans so anxious all the time about how they're going to pay for this, how they're going to pay for that. In Norway, the government has your back all the time, and it leaves people free to do, to do with their lives what they enjoy doing, to work at what they enjoy doing without a question of, can I make enough money? Uh, it, even, it allows them to start a business if they want to uh, much more easily than an American can, because if a bus- you just start a business and a business fails, you still have health care. Your kids still have their guaranteed college education. You know, you're you can try something else.
2: So all Norwegians have the right to universal public health care universal public education through university or beyond they have universal care of the elderly and disabled they have paid parental leave for mothers and fathers they have subsidized early childhood education from age one they have affordable housing they have state-of-the-art public transit They've got a lot of other things to take, as you say, take the anxiety out of daily life. But how do they pay for this? Well, my Republicans friends would say the Norwegians are lucky enough to have North Sea oil. North Sea oil makes Norway rich. We don't have North Sea oil. And therefore, therefore, what exactly?
5: Well... We keep saying that about the oil, and that is a a good excuse for not paying attention to Norway. They are just lucky they have all that oil. But in fact, that's not what pays for their universal systems. All that oil money, and it has been very substantial, goes into a sovereign wealth fund saved for the future, saved for future generations. That sovereign wealth wealth fund is now the largest one in the world. And last year it topped $1 trillion, and it's still rising. But it is controversial. It has always been controversial in Norway because Norwegians are such strong environmentalists. So now uh, with the uh, drop in oil prices and oil production. Norway has been phasing out of North Sea oil. They'd be happy to get out of it, actually, because they care so much about the environment. But in any case, as I said, they save that money for the future. And what pays for their welfare system is the taxes of the working citizens. There's absolutely... No reason why that kind of taxation system can't be adopted by a country of any size. It is absolutely crazy that we continue to have a tax system that further enriches small group of uh, the population and, and uh, diminishes everyone else and leaves us without the money to provide even for the most basic improvements in our own infrastructure. This is crazy.
2: You have one other amazing fact about North Sea oil in your report in The Nation. You say the Norwegian Ministry of Finance calculated in 2016 that the labor of women added to the net national wealth a value equivalent to the country's total petroleum wealth created by North Sea oil. What, what is the lesson here?
5: The lesson here is uh, equal pay for women and men. When women went in force into the, the workforce in Norway, particularly in the 60s and, 90, and the 70s, and continuing ever since. The the vast majority of women in Norway are employed. They were employed at wages very close to those of men, and they've been working ever since to make those wages absolutely equal. That, in fact, doubles the money that the government takes in on the tax rolls. So it's that added income to the nation, coming from the taxes of women in the workforce that has really made the difference in being able to fund the, the universal uh, welfare state. And it has been, according to the Ministry of Finance, worth much more to the country than the wealth that they've gained through oil. In the years I lived in Norway, with uh, a residence permit to be there. I received all of those benefits myself. I experienced them all myself. And I talked uh, earlier about needing to recover from the anxiety of being in war zones. I recovered also from the anxiety of being in the United States. It's a very peaceful life in a country where you feel secure and uh, I had the the real privilege of experiencing that firsthand.
2: Ann Jones, she wrote about the Norwegian menace for the nation.com. Thank you, Ann, and as they say in Norway, Tusen Tak. (laughs) It's
5: my pleasure, John. Thank you very much.
2: (laughs) Finally, a word about Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast, Where Sports and Politics Collide, hosted by the sports editor of The Nation, and featuring Dave Zirin's interviews, his commentary, and his rants, so even if you're a sports fan who hates politics, or a political junkie who hates sports, you'll find something to love in this podcast. It's posted every Tuesday, now at thenation.com. Slash Edge of Sports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
1: With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank N.A. or Stride Bank N.A. members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details.
0: This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping.